Good morning. Greetings from your brothers and sisters in Greenville, South Carolina. It's a joy for me to be back here at Harvest OPC. It seems like it's been a little while. I have maintained periodic fellowship with your outstanding pastor, and uh, I'm glad he's able to get away and I have the opportunity to preach while he's gone. I want to give a greeting to any of you who are here for the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. I see some of you, and I know some of you are from out of town, so it's good to see you this morning as well. Well, please open your Bibles to the 15th chapter of Genesis. We are on a Reformation theme with the PCRT this year for reasons that I think will be obvious to most of you looking at the calendar, Um, and uh, one of the great passages on justification through faith is Genesis 15, 1 to 6. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, beginning at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a a member of my own household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at the deeds that you did of old with the patriarchs, and we are blessed to know that these things were recorded for our benefit, that we might learn the way of salvation through faith alone. We thank you that we are involved in that very passage we read, that we are caught up, Lord, in a great plan and purpose of redemption, all that you might have the glory of your grace. Would you have that glory in us now? Would you enable us to hear and believe your word that our faith would be strengthened? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. The American general, George S. Patton, placed a high value on courage in battle. And yet he also understood human nature and its frailty. And so it was Patton, therefore, who originated the oft-repeated maxim that says fatigue makes cowards of us all. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Now, if Patton hadn't learned that from experience, he might have learned it from a study of the heroes of the Bible. One great example is in 1 Kings 18 and 19. In chapter 18, Elijah the prophet, who was more courageous than him, and he stood before the priests of Baal, and he, 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 by the power of God, he cast them down and they were destroyed. That's 1 Kings 18. A great moment of, of prophetic courage and divine power. And it's followed by 1 Kings 19, in which he learns that Jezebel, the wicked queen had sent her assassins after him, and Elijah flees. He, he loses himself completely. He, starts, he runs out of the country. He runs all the way down toward Mount Sinai. On the way there, he says, why don't you just kill me? When he gets there, he says, Lord, I'm the only one left. It, it, it's actually a, a comical 
uh, incidents of male self-pity. First, he sends his servant away, and then he says, and you've left me alone. And the Lord ministers to him on the mountain. Well, the opening verse of Genesis 15 suggests that something like that had happened with Abram. Now, if you know, in the previous chapter, chapter 14, we have a very high moment of his heroism. His nephew Lot had gone off to live near the cities of the, of the Jordan Valley. He'd got caught up in their worldly and evil affairs. And it so happens, this kind of thing will happen, uh, an unforeseen invasion occurs. The kings of the east, Kedor Laomer and his alliance. Now, this, these are not minor league players from the east. This is Babylon and other Euphrates, Mesopotamian city-states. And their army comes, and they conquer Sodom, and off goes Lot into captivity. And, and Abram, with 381 men, pursues them. He strikes them. If I was in South Carolina preaching, I might make an allusion to Stonewall Jackson and the, the Valley Campaign, but you all might take it poorly, since it was your, uh, your ancestors he routed. And he... Uh, and he, and he captured them all, and he, he brought them back, and, uh, and, and then he was spiritually heroic. He had the spoils of Sodom, but he wouldn't take the, the filthy lucre, as it were. He tithed to the Lord through Melchizedek. It was a great moment in his life. And yet we read in our first verse, the after these things, meaning in the immediate aftermath of that, he seems to be overthrown. Perhaps he began thinking, did I really go to war against Keto Laomer? Isn't it likely that these people are going to come back? How am I going to handle this? And, and he gives in, as we often seem to do, to fear. And in verse 1, the Lord comforts Abram, saying, fear not. Fear not. Now, this great chapter of the Bible gives assurance not only to Abram, but to all who, like Abram, believe in the Lord, God promises, I will be your shield, Abram. And that is a promise that is given not only to him, but also to us. I will be your shield and your reward. And then we have here a verse that becomes a, a proof text in the New Testament for the doctrine of justification through faith alone. Genesis 15:6. Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Well, let's look at these verses. Verse 1 states, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Now notice, as you will so often find, that when the Lord comforts and instructs and assures his people, it is through his word. You might say, I wish the Lord would give me that kind of comfort. Then open your Bible and even read a passage like this, and his word will do that for you. The word of God is living and active. It is effectual so to achieve God's purpose. It will succeed. It's profitable to meet our every spiritual need. Now, in this case, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision. Now, given later examples, that probably means he did so in bodily form. And here's the message of comfort he brought. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Now, I've mentioned that Abram had reasons to be afraid, and so often do we. There are worldly threats that may be intimidating and real. For some, the fear of disease assails our minds. For others, it may be the scorn of people or social rejection. Sometimes it might be government powers uh, or threats like Keter Laomer 
worldly enemies who really do have the power to hurt you and destroy what you've built. And so for such threats from the world and sinful men, what the Bible urges us to do is to rely on the Lord to protect his people. Now, how can we rely upon that? Because he has promised to do so. That's what we have here. God has promised to protect his people. I am your shield, and that is the antidote to our fear. Hebrews 13, 6, 5 and 6, relates a promise like this directly to us. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, so we can say with confidence, I will not fear what can man do to me. Those would be good memory verses. Hebrews 13, 5 to 6, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you, he promises. Now the Lord gives him a reason not to fear the threat of worldly assault. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. And so he, he pledges to be present with him <clears throat> to stand in the way of whatever would be a deadly assault against him. Now ultimately, of course, it is God's protection that cures our anxiety. Do you realize we're a society we have great material abundance. We have so many things, and yet we're riddled by anxiety. Now, why is that? It's because we take our eyes off the Lord. We place our anxiety, we place our security in riches or in position or in our associations. And as we go on in life, we learn those things aren't as secure as we thought they were. The Lord is secure. Now, this is not to say that the Lord has promised you that nothing bad will ever happen to you. You say, well, so I had a car accident. I thought you said the Lord was going to protect me. The Lord does not say in the Bible, and you will never have a car accident. He is saying that he will preserve your souls, your, especially your eternal souls are in his safekeeping. In Abram's case, the Lord had reasons to protect him in a military way. That was part of what was going on there. But every believer has the promise at the end of Psalm 121. I hope you know the 121st Psalm. It begins, I, look to my, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And then it ends, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life both now and forevermore. How many times have I prayed with someone going uh, under anesthesia, about to go into a surgery, and the fact is they might die. And I, I will, one of the things I'll often do is read Psalm 121, and I say, the Lord will keep your life. He will keep your soul eternally. You are safe with him. Now, the Lord not only promised that he would protect Abram, but that he would himself be the chief blessing of Abram's life. Look again at verse 1, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Now the syntax there can be taken one of two ways, and the translations uh, usually will have a footnote uh, for the other way, the way the, the ESV I'm using says, that not only will I protect you, but I will make sure that you have a blessing. I will be your shield, and you're going to have a very great reward. That is syntactically a possible translation. And yet I agree with most Reformed commentators that what the text is really saying is not merely that I will protect you and I will give you a blessing, but I will be your shield and I will be your reward. The blessing that's very great that you will have is me. That is what God is saying and it accords with that great line in Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen cup and my portion. 
the Lord would not only provide Abram protection, but he was going to give to Abram himself. Now, I think there's a relationship here earlier to the tithing of, of Abram in chapter 14. People who commit themselves to tithing find out that the, they, the Lord does not become their debtor. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a legalistic thing, but you, you give yourself to the Lord, and he gives himself to you, and that's what he had done. He didn't want the spoils of Sodom. He wanted God, what was going on there, what's going on now, is he wants God to be glorified. That's what I care about. I want God to get the credit for my victory, not me, not the king of Sodom. I want God to be glorified, and God says, you know what, and I want to give you my glory. I want to give myself to you. The Lord conveys to Abram that he would make himself Abram's portion and reward. And he would teach Abram to find his true satisfaction in the knowledge and, pre and the presence of God. There's no greater gift that God can give you than to find your satisfaction in that you know him. Now this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, and that his presence would be in your life. Now, I think Christians tend to struggle with what does it mean to possess the Lord as our blessing? And I think a good illustration is seen in our romantic relationships. A husband or a wife may say to the other, you're the best thing I've ever had. Now, that, that, that husband is not saying you're my property. That wife is not saying I, I, I own you. They're, they're saying our relationship it is the most meaningful thing that I have in this life. The way I can, we, we, we have companionship, that we stand side by side, that we minister to one another with love and grace. It's the most valuable possession short of God that I have in all my life. You are the best thing I've ever had. That's the way we talk to one another. I hope we do. And here's what's being said here. If, the, if you will come to God through Jesus Christ, if you will trust him over the course of your life, you will find that the best thing you have ever had is him, his relationship with you, your relationship to him, his faithfulness, the ministry of his spirit in your life. And, and, and what you will find is that's true more and more as you follow him. Here's the good news. It will be even more and more, ever more, in all eternity to come after the return of Jesus. Well, if we possess God in faith, let me just work through some of the things that we gain. Believers receive justification before God's law. And so your sins are forgiven. And on the day of judgment, God will accept you. The great line from that song, he will look on Christ and pardon you. If you possess God through faith in Jesus, you are now justified through faith. You are now adopted as a child of God. In, in Paul's language, a dearly beloved child of God, and he's taken you under his care. You are being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. What good news that is. And you will be glorified together with Christ, heirs together with Christ of the glory of God. You see, what an understatement it is. When the Lord says to Abram, I, I am your very great reward. Now, speaking of the many blessings that compensate us for the difficulty of following Jesus. You do know it's difficult to follow Jesus. It's free, but it's going to cost you. There's pains involved, but listen to what Alexander McLaren writes. He says, the reward which surpasses all other 
is that by these sacrifices, what we attain to is a greater capacity for God to know him, to possess more of him. This is the only reward worth pursuing. Only God will satisfy the soul. I am your shield, Abram. I am your very great reward. Those words now are said to us in Christ. Well, Genesis 15.1, therefore, conveys one of the Bible's great assurances. And yet, very interestingly, Abram was not in a mood to rejoice. Instead, he responds with a complaint that apparently, you know how this is, it's that little bitterness is growing in your heart, and you, don't, you can't get rid of it. And you're saying, I really hope it doesn't come out. No, no, it is going to come out. And Abram's bitterness, his little complaint, comes out at this time, but Abram said, verse 2, O Lord God, what can you give me? For I continue childless. Now, you might think that he's really lost his composure, but I want you to observe he's being very reverent and respectful. Adonai, Yahweh, O Lord God. He's not being disrespectful. And what this incident illustrates is that, in fact, God is not offended when you unburden your heart to him. Isn't that wonderful? God invites you to do the very thing that Abram does here. Tell me, tell me what's on your heart. In, in prayer to God, we are to unburden ourselves to him. When our hearts are downcast, if you're perhaps doubting God's promises, if you find yourself saying, I'm not sure I believe in God's promises, God knows that. You don't, just don't need to hide that doubt from God. He is fully aware of that. So instead of trying to hide from him, what we should do is we should talk to God about it in prayer. And the Lord who appeared to Abram with such loving mercy, you see, he can be accounted on to respond to our sincere burdens, griefs, doubts, concerns with patient kindness. I think one, another great Bible verse to remember, in fact, I have it on a, I, I printed it out in nice calligraphy. I didn't do it by my hand. I did it with my computer, but it was on nice paper. And I framed it and I put it in the kitchen for my wife so she would, she has a lot of reasons to be anxious. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And that's what Abram shows us that we can do. He's got this burden, and, and he casts his anxiety on the Lord, 1 Peter 5, 7. Now, here his complaint focuses on the painful burden of his childlessness. Uh, you see, even if the Lord should fill his life with blessings, he, he says, what good are they to me if I have no heir to pass it on to? Verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now, it seems that Eliezer was his, his manager, his chief steward. And not that there's anything wrong with Eliezer, but what Abr Abram longed for was a proper heir. Verse 3, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now you see, God had promised Abram the land, that it would be given to him and to his offspring forever. That was back in Genesis 13, 15. I'm going to give the land to you and to your offspring forever. That promise had already been given. And the Lord had added that his offspring, Genesis 13, 16, would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. But you see, that, that, that promise was given, but then the time passed. Isn't that what's difficulty? The difficulty years go by. 
and the fulfillment doesn't yet arrive. Uh, Abraham is now perhaps as old as 85. In the next chapter, we find that he's 86. So he's maybe as old as 85 years old, and yet he doesn't yet have a child. And everybody else seems to be having babies. I'm sure that's how a person in your church feels. If they struggle, one of the greatest struggles existentially for a woman is the inability to have children, and it seems that everybody else is having babies, and I think they are, which is a very good thing. But it's a burden to the heart. But behold, think of the anguish. Behold, you have given me no offspring. Well, let me say, if the Lord's tender care for Abram is remarkable in verse 1, how much more is his reply to this complaint? It exceeds all expectation. That The very grace we see here in the kindness and the, the mercy, merciful care that God gives to Abram is the very grace that gives us forgiveness of our sins. Yes, God had promised Abram offspring. Yes, God's promise was certain to come true. But what we see him as he graciously and abundantly lays out his response. Look at verse 4. First, God repeats and he clarifies the earlier promise. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse asked the question, why does a mother have to tell the same thing to her child a hundred times? Because 99 is apparently not enough. And so it is with God. Let's go over this. Abram, pay attention, Abram. Uh, uh, your, own, your very own son, I meant your literal son, is going to be your heir. It, it seems that Abram had worried if there was a loophole. God said, I'll have offspring. They will inherit the land. He didn't specify in the language earlier. I'm trying to read the small print. Moses hasn't yet written Genesis, so I have to do it by memory, and I may be getting it wrong a little bit. And so uh, did he mean I would actually have a child through my wife, a baby like everybody else, or is that not what he meant? Because it's been 10 more years. I'm 85 now. I'm a, I'm a patriarch. I live a long time, but 85 is pretty old anyway. And God answers, oh, let me clarify to you, Abram, no. I did not mean a servant like Eliezer of Damascus, your very own son out of your own body. So God very graciously repeats the promise and he clarifies it. By the way, you'll find that true through your study of the Bible. You, you, you read a promise, you study a passage, and then as you're trying to live by it, you start having questions about it. Well, then you go back to it. And you read it more, and sometimes, oh, I didn't see this. It was there earlier, and the Holy Spirit didn't bring it to my attention earlier. Now he brings it to my attention now. Lord does the same thing for us. Well, that need then for understanding prompts the Lord now to expand the promise from its original form. Not that the Lord's purpose had changed, but he's ministering to the struggle of Abram's faith, and so he intends now to give a more potent impression. Look at Genesis 15, 5. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Now, I think it's hard for us today to imagine the blazing scene before Abram's eyes as he cranes his neck and looks upward in the sky. Probably most of us have not seen what Abram saw because of the, the urban environment or suburban environment. There's lights everywhere. It's all washed out. I had many years in the army, and 
I was a tank officer and I, a lot of time in the deserts. And one of the things about the desert is that you're in that great, you're hundreds of miles away sometimes from the, the nearest habitation. And so the, the sky becomes like a, a, an amphitheater for the glory of the stars. And you see so many of them and so bright. And you see their formations. You can see the Milky Way. You see not only the constellations, but the stars within them that you never saw before. I, I don't usually have much good to say about the Navy, but if you're ever at sea in the Navy, they get the same, and I've had that experience too. It's like these crystal stars flowing down almost upon you. You feel like you can touch them, and they feel that way as they cruise the dark oceans. That's the impression he's giving. And it's not merely the sheer number of them. The Lord is making that point. A seemingly infinite number of lights. But here it's also the wonder. It's the majesty. It's the glory of the night stars above. God is intending to bring that impression of glory and to burn it into Abram's heart. Robert Candlish says this, in the still and solemn silence of the earth's unbroken slumber, under the deep azure arch of heaven, not a breath stirring, not a cloud passing, then and there to stand alone with God, these stars, Abram, canst thou number them? Thus in the undimmed glory of their multitudinous hosts, the Lord conveyed to Abram the splendor of his promise for offspring. You know, I think if you study this passage and you reflect upon it, you'll never look up at the stars again without thinking of Genesis 15, 5. I hope you remember this passage. This is the quintessential biblical illustration of the church. Jesus used it very often. The New Testament says God was showing not merely his physical heirs, but his spiritual offspring. That's us, vast beyond reckoning glorious beyond imagining in God's redemptive purpose. And here's the thing, for those who follow in the footsteps of Abram's faith, there's the added thrill, it's expressed I think very well in a line from Rich Mullins' best song, Step by Step, maybe you know the song, Sometimes I Think of Abraham, How One Star He Saw Had Been Lit For Me. They're so many, they're so glorious, and literally, and one of them was given by the Lord to Abram in that Canaanite prairie to represent me. If you, like Abram, believe the promise of God for salvation through Jesus, then your star is not lost in some great cosmic sea. No, it is found in the decree of God to glorify every believer who is in his everlasting church. Well, in tender loving care for Abram's heart, straining as he was to believe what God had promised, the Lord repeated and clarified, and then he illustrated his promise, and then he confirms it. Look at verse 5 at the end. In the most definite terms, so shall, Abram, your offspring be. Uh, so firm, is the Lord's revelation to Abram here concerning the promised seed that Dale Ralph Davis refers to this as a sacrament of assurance. And when he uses that language, he reminds us that what the Lord did with Abraham and the stars is analogous to what happens in the Lord's Supper as the elements that signify 
the atoning death of the Lord Jesus are set before you. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. A sacrament of assurance. Look at these and know that it is true. God is saying. His promises to you are as sure as the heavens that shine above. Well, the final verse of this most heartening passage actually is a comment from the narrator. Now, the narrator is Moses. And the account, the, the narrative actually leaves us with Abram staring upward, surely with his mouth open and his eyes moist. And we're wondering, I wonder what's going on in, in Abram's heart as he's standing there beside the Lord, receiving that confirmation, that sacrament of assurance, looking up at the glory of the stars. And, and Moses says, I'm going to tell you what was going on in his heart. He believed the Lord. And here's what was going on in the Lord's heart. He counted it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, the significance of Genesis 15, 6 simply cannot be overstated. It is one of the most frequently cited verses in the New Testament. Now, the Apostle Paul in, in cites this episode uh, as how Abram is a model for our faith. Listen to Romans 4, 19 and 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. God, is, God made those stars. He can keep this promise. He believed God was able to do so. And God was nurturing his faith, Paul said. God is nurturing your faith. And he stares up into those stars which God placed before him. Abram finds his doubt is gone. He believes the word of God together with the ability of God. Abram shows us that faith is in the word of God, but also in the God of the word, in his faithfulness, his power, his love. Now he further shows us that faith relies specifically on God's promise to save us through the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now you may say, where is faith in Christ in this passage? Well, the New Testament, citing this verse, makes it very clear that Abram was not trusting merely that a son would be born from his body, but that the son, the heir, would come from his body, the Redeemer promised all the way back in Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve. On one occasion, the Lord Jesus was disputing with the Pharisees, and the subject of Abraham came up, and the Pharisee says, you know, he thinks he's better than Abraham. And Jesus made this answer, John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now we're not told which Old Testament episode Jesus is referring to when he said that Abraham saw my day, but it could very well have been this one. In fact, Paul points out that in, when God says, look up at the stars, so shall your offspring be, it, it so happens that the Hebrew word for offspring is written the same way in the plural and in the singular. And Paul says not only is he speaking there of the offsprings, but the singular offspring who was to come, and Abram was trusting in Jesus Christ. And to your offspring, Galatians 3.16 who is Christ. <clears throat> now you see, however Abram's faith in Christ was dawning, 
it's clear that Abram already is connecting the dots between the promises given to him and the greater promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sinclair Ferguson explains, Abram believed God, not just in a general sense, but with respect to the promise of the coming Savior. He trusted the promised Savior, and God counted it to him for righteousness. Well, I've noted the frequent references in the New Testament to Genesis 15, 6, and particularly in Romans 4, where this is made a proof text for the doctrine of justification through faith alone. Let me just conclude by making three points about what this verse says about justification through faith alone as it's it's expounded on in the New Testament. Now first, this verse shows that faith is not a work by which we justify ourselves. Let me say that again. Faith is not a work by which we justify ourselves. In Romans 3 and 4, Paul explains that justification is not through works. It's not by earning it. It's through faith in Christ. And then listen to Romans 4, 2 to 3. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. Now by righteousness, both Paul and Moses mean the sinner's need to be justified before God. There sits God on his throne. There is his justice. Here I am in my guilt. I need to be acquitted. I need to be forgiven. I need to be pardoned. I need to be justified. And some scholars then take this statement to mean that, well, uh, since Abram couldn't do works, he couldn't justify himself through works, God allowed him to be justified by doing something else as a surrogate for works. Faith will be a different work. He can do this work. And so faith will be the work by which he will present himself as godly before God. Now that is not at all what's being said. If you fast forward a little bit in Romans 4, he says God justifies the ungodly. And so when Abram is justified through faith, he is justified as an ungodly person. Faith is not making him a godly person. He's not trusting in his faith. He's trusting in Christ through faith to be justified. My friends, do not rely upon your faith to justify you. Your faith could not save a flea. Your faith will never be perfect. It is not a work that you can come into God and say, look at this, now I deserve to be justified. No, no, faith is the, it's the empty hands, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I thank the Lord that I'm not relying on my faith. Christians who think faith is a justifying work will never have peace. Well, secondly, explaining further, Paul makes a contrast to say faith is not a work. In fact, faith justifies apart from works. Faith alone apart from works. He has cited Abram's faith, and then he continues in Romans 4, 4 to 5, now to the one who works, his works are counted to him, not as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, there's two ways you can be justified. There's the old-fashioned way, by earning it. Lord, I did something good enough 
to deserve to be justified before you. Now, that's what the average person thinks. You go out and talk to people. Do you expect to go to heaven? Yeah, I'm, I'm basically a good person. I, I'm, I'm over the, whatever the, God grades on a curve. Actually, he does not. My, my son's a college freshman, and he has a couple of classes where the professor does not grade on the curve, and it's an offense to all the students. Well, God does not grade on the curve either, and it's a 100% mark, and you don't have 100%. And so you can't do it. The way of deserving it is not open to you. But God offers his grace as a gift to the undeserving through faith alone. He justifies the ungodly. It is sinners who are justified through faith alone in Christ, not godly people who have merited acceptance by their works. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2.16, also with reference to Abraham. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, I've said that faith is not a work that justifies you. When it says Abram believed the Lord, he counted it him to righteousness. He's not saying faith was a justifying work. In fact, we are justified by faith alone apart from works. Now that begs the question, how is that possible? How is God, who is holy, to justify an ungodly person? That's what Romans 4 says, talking about Abraham, just because that person believes. Well, the answer is found in a word that appears throughout this passage in Romans 4. It's also found in the Hebrew in Genesis 15, 6. It is the word counted. The Lord counted it to him as righteousness. The Lord credited it to him. The, uh, the word in the Greek is legizomai logistics, logarithms. It's a mathematical term. It says God credited his account with righteousness. Let me use my Bible as an example. Here is you, and you have, imagine this is infinitely heavy. Here is your sin, and here's your righteousness. Folks, we have a problem. But here's what happens in the gospel. Jesus Christ is the exact opposite. He has no sin, and he has all righteousness. And through faith in him, his faith is credited to us and our sins are credited to him. This is the very formula of 2 Corinthians 5.20. God made him who knew no sin to become sin in, for us, that we might become righteous in him. How did Jesus get our sins? Not by infusion, not by participation. Jesus did not die because he had become a sinner, but because our sins were reckoned to him. They were credited as demerits to his account. And it is in the same manner that God, as the gift of his grace, credits the righteousness of Jesus to us through faith alone. He does this for the praise of his own glory. Let me point out just a few implications of this. It means this, that while you may be more holy in life, I hope you are, I hope you, will be, you are growing in sanctification. In fact, I know if you're a Christian, you're going to be more holy because you're not perfect now and you're going to be perfect later. You're going to be more holy. My friends, you are never going to be more, more righteous in all eternity than you are right now. God looks upon you now. You say, I'm an, look, I'm aware of my ungodliness. Oh, so is he. But he has clothed you with the righteousness of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ based upon his actual fulfillment of the law is, is credited to you and God sees you just in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I love preaching this at weddings. I really can't resist because I have a woman and she's dressed as beautifully as she is ever going to be. 
and gleaming white, and she's standing before the church, and I find that brides in their wedding dress tend to hold their heads high. And I'd like to point out, you're going to wear this wedding dress for a little while, and then the, the wedding's over, the reception's over, you're going to change into other clothes. I want you to know that God looks on you this way every day of your life. How can he do that? Through faith alone in Jesus Christ, faith is credited as righteousness. We, the, the righteousness of Christ is credited to us. Well, Dale Ralph Davis tells of ministering to a man who was terribly ill and he probably was going to die. The man had been a Christian for many, many years, but he was doubting. That often happens. And he said to the pastor, give me some words of assurance that I am going to go to heaven if I die. And so Ralph chose John 6, 37. He wrote, all that the Father gives me will come to me Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And the man said, isn't that a great word of assurance? Whoever comes to me, I will receive, and I will never cast him out. You've come to Jesus. He's going to keep you safe. And he says, don't leave until you write it down. So he got a post-it note, and he wrote a pen. He wrote John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He gave it to the man. The man actually got better, and he, he sadly didn't die. And... Uh, and he got a new job a couple of years later, and he moved to another city. And about 10 years later, uh, Davis was in that city. And he ran into the man, and he saw him, and the man reached into his wallet, and he pulled out the post-it note. He said, I'm still keeping it here. I pull it out of my wallet, and I read it. Well, my friends, take Genesis 15, 6 and what it means. Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. The New Testament says that means that through your faith in Jesus Christ, you are righteous perfectly before God. Memorize that verse. If you need to, write it on a post-it note and keep it in your wallet. It is true. It will give you peace in your soul. Let me give the final word then on the episode of Abram to the Apostle Paul. Paul says this, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for us. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and who was raised for our justification. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news that we see in the life of Abram, that you nurtured his faith. Oh, Lord, how patient you were. How, how, how much you invested that he would believe in you. And Lord, you do the same thing for us. And then through that faith, we read your own testimony that we are justified through faith in the Lord Jesus. For all eternity, we are forgiven, cleansed, pardoned, justified in your sight. Well, Lord, Abram would have a long life growing in faith. Cause the thing to be true of us, Lord. Let us see you and believe you and trust in you and then say lord we want to live for you we will consecrate our lives under your glory we pray for this in jesus name amen